All right, guys, we're Junto Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about money in America with Stephen Prince. And Stephen Prince is a member of Patriotic Millionaires. Correct. That's correct. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, yeah, it, uh, we're a fairly small organization. We're only a couple of hundred people nationwide. Uh, the center of our universe would be uh, in New York City and, the, and up to Boston and down to, to D.C. Uh, and then, then over in Silicon Valley, we have a lot of members over there, too. But we're a, we're a group of people that just believe that America is and has been for quite some time heading down a bad road. We're heading down a road that if everyone that we're supporting some of the things, that, and we'll get into that later in more detail, but if they understood that the things that they're supporting are in their own disservice, that they're not in their own best interest, I think they would see things differently than they do right now. But that's what we're supporting. We're supporting what would be typically called in today's vernacular progressive causes. And, and that's, that's what we try to do. We fight it hard every day, all, all 200 of us. So when you say we're so wages, that's one area. Let's let's start there with with the wage raising the minimum wage. Why does that not hurt small business? Well, well, there's so many places we could go with that. I mean, we mm -hmm. could talk about why raise wages. I, I can remember back in the '70s and the '80s and the '90s, Congress would have a big battle every year trying to raise their own salaries. And they fought it and fought it and fought it. And then they'd go quiet for six or seven years. Republicans would be down, so they didn't want to say anything. Democrats would be down, then they wouldn't, didn't want to say anything. And then ultimately, I think it was probably 12 or 14 years ago, they passed a wage increase for themselves, and they tied it to the cost of living. So now they don't have to fight that fight anymore. You'll never mm -hmm. hear Congress ask for a raise ever again because they built in the cost of living. Now, it seems kind of odd to me that it's okay for the 535 people who run the country to give themselves a wage increase, but they don't want to give a wage increase to the working class, to the people who are out there doing all the work of America. Ironically, our own Senator Lamar Alexander from the state of Tennessee, who's retiring this year, believes that there should be no minimum wage, no minimum wage. Now, the thing that's always struck me as so odd about that is it's phenomenally naive to not think or to realize that there are employers out there, not in these times, not in full, uh, un, un, uh, full employment times, but, but typically when times are hard, there are a lot of employers out there who will pay people just as little as they possibly can. If, if unemployment goes back to 8 or 10% again like it was in 08 and 09, there will be people who out there, if there were not a minimum wage, today it's $7.25 an hour, which if people will do the math on that, it's only $14,000 a year for a full-time employee. There are people out there who would pay that. They will pay people. And, and to not recognize that, that an employer – is a somewhat intimidating in presence, intimidating presence in the eyes of an employee. And so you don't, most employees don't have the nerve and the will to stand up to their employer. Mm -hmm. So if you tell me I'm going to pay you $7.25 an hour, you haven't had a job for six months, you really don't want this job, but you need to eat. You need to feed your children. You need to pay the rent. You need to pay your electricity bill. So you'll take that $7.25 an hour wage. Now, again, Congress gave themselves a raise, tied it to the cost of living, and why can't we do the same thing for the working class? So that, that's one issue. Do you have a question? Because I could go on. Yeah, I've heard. The, so, so essentially, the, when they, they may, we pay for their housing. So on top of their wage that they get paid to be in Congress, they also get their housing taken care of. And is that kind of... You know, I don't know what the total deal is. That's a that's a that's a rabbit hole I won't go down because I have okay. a lot of beliefs on that as well and ideas to how to solve that. I mean, because originally to to serve in Congress was it was really something you were doing for your country. Civic you know, duty. when you came out of the farm or the the factories, wherever it was that you were, and back in the eighteen hundreds and nineteen hundreds, you were serving your country. How much money you made and the contacts you made and the, the money you made on those contacts was not the point. It was to serve your country. It's not that way anymore, I'm afraid. It's, it's become serving yourself and serving your immediate constituency, not the larger constituency. Right. And that typically tends to be people like me, people with money, people who write checks to, to fund campaigns. We are the ones that they pay attention to, and they should be paying attention to everyone. But 
you know, in defense of Congress, those those folks, those men and women, the 435 that serve up there, they're running for office the day they're elected. The day they win, they're running for office again because they've got to do it all over again in two years. So it is, it is a stressful, tough thing for them to have to go through. But still, we've got to come back to recognizing that America is a, a country of 330 million people. 330 million people, not 25 or 30, not for those of us that are wealthy. And that's who the country is responding to right now. That's who Congress is, is passing laws in deference to, and that is we wealthy people. And it's, it's just wrong. And I would contend it's unsustainable. Yeah. So I want to get on to innovation because I don't think that's a, a point that many people focus on. But do you think term limits to Congress would stave off some of that? You know, it's to me, it's 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 really almost comical that we even ask ourselves that question. Yeah, <laughs> right. That we, that we even have to ask ourselves that. Practically, well, I was going to say almost all elected offices around the country do have term limits, and I know that's not the case. But the governor in the state of Tennessee, he can only run for two terms. He can only serve for two terms. Terms. The president of the United States, he can only serve, he or she can only serve for two terms. Right. So what, what is sacrosanct about the 535 members of Congress in the Senate? And, and I personally think that until we have term limits, we're not going to be able to totally fix the problems in America. Because once they're up there, they're getting so dug into the moneyed environment in, in Washington. Uh, and, and so it, they, they are almost required to run again because these large lobbyists and and uh, and corporations that are supporting them want them to stay in. They've got a lot of money invested in these people after they've been in there one or two or three terms, and they don't want them to leave because they'll have to groom a whole new group. If a whole new group comes in, they got to groom them all over again and get them to do their bidding. And so, I, you know, to 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 deny the fact that term limits would be a vast, a, a radical benefit to the to to the country, I think is is being naive and and, and ignoring the the facts. Yeah, there's the whole joke where if a millionaire or billionaire dies, who inherits their congressmen like, or, yeah, or yeah. their senators? Right. Um, with innovation, I, like I usually <laughs> like to go from this this standpoint because um, I don't think people like I, you had mentioned. In one of your interviews, uh, Henry Ford. Right. So he was going against, and this is kind of layman's terms. You might want to look some of this up, my, uh, Scotty. But um, essentially, there was a company called Almac, I believe they were called, that owned the patent on the vehicle. And he was fighting against or trying to get his right to make the, the, the automobile for the common man. And I guess Teddy Roosevelt uh, broke up big steel, and that affected the lobbying money. They eventually lost in court. Am I kind of on the right? Well, you're digging a lot deeper than I have the capacity okay. to dig, but I but I'm interested in what you're saying. Okay, so so yeah, so the the story goes, and you guys can all check check me on this. But Teddy, it kind of was a ripple effect. So Teddy broke up Big Steel, which lobbied for the All Mac. All Mac lost that lobbying power, ended up losing in court, which allowed Ford to make the automobile, and then came about the assembly line and all this innovation that pushed our country way forward so there's that argument um that when the living wage is kept to so low that at the end of the day what's happening is you're staving off innovation so in other words that guy that barely makes ends meet that might have a great idea that he can't go to an investor or doesn't have the funds to push that out therefore you're keeping all those people back and subsequently keeping the entire country and some in some respects the world back is that a fair argument? Well, you know, Trevor, there, there are many, many layers to this living wage yeah. discussion. I, I mean, the simple one and the one that I always keep coming back to, but you peeled back more layers of it than I had even thought to consider. But uh, everybody that, that own companies, that make a lot of money, that have people that work for them, lose sight of the fact that they need to have consumers to buy their services and their products. And if the consumers don't have the money in their pocket to buy their, their services and their products, and they, they're just barely getting by, it's all they can do to pay the power bill, to, to maybe buy groceries, in many cases not able to buy their, their medicine for, the, for their necessary health care, 
then they're not going to be consumers of new cars or even replacement tires. Or, or there, it's, there are many people out there in America that their battery dies on the car, and it's cheaper for them to ride the bus because they don't have the $150 or the $100 to buy a new battery for the car. So instead, what do they do? They ride the bus when they've got a perfectly good running car, but they're broke. They're living not from paycheck to pay. They're borrowing on every paycheck because we're just not paying them enough money. And, and, and you know, and I keep saying uh, there are so many ways to, to, to explain this, this issue. I, you know, I've, I've got a fairly, <clears throat> and this is a, bit, a, bit, a little bit off track, but I've got this idea that I, I really think we ought to raise uh, a gasoline tax. We haven't raised gasoline tax, I think, in 15, 16 years. It's been a long, long time. The price of gasoline right now is as low as it's been uh, and has been low because we're fracking and we're taking all this, that we found all this oil here in the United States. Now we're the largest exporter of oil in the world, uh, and, but, but the, the, or maybe not the largest exporter, but the largest producer of oil in the world. And, and so it's a perfect time to layer on a, 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 a tax on gasoline. What I would like to do is I would like to add 20 cents a gallon over a four-year period. Let's raise a nickel a year for the next four years so that we get up to 20 cents and then dedicate 100% of those monies to infrastructure, to the, to, the, to the improvement of our roads, improvement of our airlines, some high-speed rail, all the things that, that, that we know is infrastructure in America. Now, a couple of things will happen. One, where would we be today without the interstate highway system? What if Eisenhower and all the guys in the late 50s had not had the foresight to commit to this multi-year construction of the interstate highway system? So we have that. But you know what else happened that people don't even think about? We created some really good jobs. For mm -hmm. 15 to 20 years, we had good-paying jobs that people all over the country were driving bulldozers and pans and backhoes and paving equipment, building the interstate highway system all across the country. So we have this phenomenal infrastructure that we created, and we also put created some great jobs. I would contend if we raise minimum wage, it's going to force everybody else who's barely above minimum wage to have to raise their wages up too so that all wages go up and we'll create consumers with money in their pockets. That's what we want. We want consumers that can, that can buy the essentials in life. But, but a lot of my well-to-do buddies and friends, which most of my buddies are well-to-do, and most of them are on the other side of the political spectrum from where I am, but they feel like that everybody who's broke is broke because they're lazy. Mm -hmm. They unequivocally believe that they are in their position of destitution or borderline destitution because they're lazy, and that just could not be further from the truth. Yeah. No, I'll attest to that. <laughs> it's, it's just, but, but you know what that does? By, by, by contending that they're lazy, it then gives you the ability to say with, with a good conscience that you don't want to pay more taxes. I don't want to pay more taxes because they're going to give everybody food stamps. It's a big old food stamp bugaboo. We're afraid that we're going to give somebody money that is lazy. You know, what I always say, and, and, I, and this is always the, the counter that people give to me when I start talking about trying to help those who are down and out and help them, and they'll, they'll bring up some woman who has five children by five different fathers, and that, that they just don't want the, their yeah. hard-earned tax money to go to that lady. <laughs> the and, I said, and I say, here's what I would ask you is, what part did those five children play in her circumstance? What, what did they do to, to earn the, 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 the disdain that you're foisting, foisting on them? Is it right to treat them the same way just because, let's say the mother is, you know, she's a, a worthless recalcitrant. Who's to say? But the children aren't. But if we rob them of the ability to have good housing, good food, good education, good health care, then chances are they're probably going to devolve more to like their mother is rather than what their opportunity is. I mean, there could be a genius in there. There could be a Henry Ford in there. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry. I got way off track, no, which, okay. I, which I tend to do. Back to Henry Ford. So remember what Henry Ford said, though. He wanted to pay all of his people a wage that would allow them to buy his cars. Mm -hmm. How brilliant is that? Makes sense. If you own a McDonald's <laughs> or if you own a Burger King or a Chick-fil-A or whatever it is you own, don't you need to pay your, enough, your people enough to where they can at least buy your product? It, it, to me, it's just it's a, it's a crazy um, uh, financial discussion when you can't realize that you're putting money into the pockets of those who really need it. I don't need more money. Yeah. I, I, I've been rich for quite some time now, and I've just been very, very lucky. 
been very lucky, the right place. The big thing that happened to me was I, born, I was born a white kid, a white male. That helped me a tremendous amount, and white guys that don't understand that are just fooling themselves. But that aside, uh, you know, it's, it's the born on third base syndrome. You're, you're, you, you think you just hit a triple when, in fact, you were born on third base. That's the way a lot of white right. guys are. That's what Nick Hanar said. So he said, he goes, I have no delusions that if I wasn't born in a thoroughbore country, I would be on the road so- selling fish. That's right. That's <laughs> He's right. like, I, I, I had extraordinary circumstances. Well, I, I certainly attribute a lot of my success to luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't really think I'm that much smarter than anybody else. Uh, I, I, I really don't work that hard. People, my mother always talks about, oh, honey, you work so hard. And I say, Mom, I have really never worked hard. Mm-hmm. I worked hard when I was in the trucking business with Daddy. And when I got out of this trucking business, I stopped working hard and started working smart. And then I'm also like Nick Hanauer. He made a comment in his uh, in the in the TED talk that I saw of his, and that is he has a tremendous uh, comfort with risk. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm not a risk-averse guy. And if you're willing to bet it all or bet a lot of it all the time, and if you're fairly smart, you're going to you're going to win some. You don't have to win them all. You're going to win some. And and in our game, usually a win will will make up for a lot of losses when you made bad decisions. Yeah, I think that's where it gets to. Some people tie that with some of their, you know, the circumstances they have to, to benefit them. They they take that as they didn't have any attributes. Obviously, Nick Hanar, he said, you know, he does have a high propensity for risk. And right. he, he was pretty much self-made, right. um, unlike some people in, in office. Did I say that out loud? Uh, you know, they got a big, big loan from dad or interest. Um but was actually self-made, but he acknowledges, he's like, yeah, there's some things I do good. But he's like, I actually, you know, I got lucky with this investment. And, you know, it's one of those things I think our founders want us to be in a meritocracy. Right. So, in other words, like, uh, I had a good uh, analogy for it. Um, you know, it's basically the way I view politics is it's not really ideas. It's how much money you have behind them. So, it's kind of like, a, for, if a, for example, if you're a runner and you're really not that fast, but you're barring all the faster runners, well, you're not, it's not a meritocracy. <laughs> does that make sense? It might not be. Well, great. it does. I mean, people forget the fact that the vast majority of we uh, Western Europeans came over here to get away from a plutocratic environment. Right. We, we, we didn't like the fact that the, the cards were stacked against us, not only the day we were born, but for our whole lives. Mm-hmm. Because if you were born with land, then you were going to keep land, and their children were going to keep the land, and their children were going to keep the land. You, on the other hand, you were a bottle washer or a, or a cobbler, whatever it was, and chances are that's what you're going to continue to be because yeah. all the money was piled in piles that were protected and corralled and controlled. And, and we're moving to that again. And if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves in that same position. Which is funny because so that's one thing that I would like uh, to kind of portray is that, you know, a lot of times we attach these things like, well, this is the American way. And I'm like, well, no, the founders, for example, Jefferson said it was manifestly absurd to indefinitely wrap up monies into future generations continuously. Like they were against not just completely taking everything away, but they were, they didn't want to, to push it. They thought that those things did lead to aristocracy, oligarchy, and eventually monarchy, which you have, for example, Trump. Trump, right. Trump has said maybe we'll have a lifelong president these days. So God, I, how scary is that? You know, I heard a woman say the other day yeah. at one of, his, one of his rallies, she made a comment that just scares me to death. She said, if we were ever going to have a dictator as president, here is the guy that I want to be him. This mm-hmm. is the guy that I, that just, that's not, not only Trump, and I am admittedly not a Trump fan, and I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, and I know that a lot of people love him. They love his radical nature, his, his unpredictability, and I, and I really do understand that. And uh, while I don't agree with them, I, I do understand how they got from point A to point B. But to have him or Obama or Bill Clinton or, or Franklin Roosevelt, pick anyone, yeah, Ronald Reagan, any of them, mm-hmm. we don't, we, that's not who we are as a country. And, and to, to envision him or, or Hillary, for that matter, being present for 16 or 20 or 24 years would be catastrophic. Doesn't matter. Because what they will do, as, as any other dictator will ever do, and that is they'll continue 
to defend their position and their role because they have this support base built up around them who want to keep them in that role because they've gotten to where they are. The underlings have gotten to where they are because of the relationship with that dictator. And so they're going to defend and protect him or her to the best of their ability. I just came back from uh, my wife and I just cruised around the world, really, literally cruised around the world. We left uh, San Francisco on January the 5th and pulled into London four and a half months later on a ship. We went to 20... No, 33,000 miles in four and a half months, visited uh, five, 45 countries. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing trip. And, and I'm not oblivious to how incredibly cool and blessed we are to have had the opportunity to do that. I've never been out of that country. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've been a lot. Of, but anyway, I just that's one thing I really love. I love to travel and, I, and I'm willing to spend the money to do it. But but uh, and I'm lucky enough to have the money to do it. But but going to Africa, we had when we came into the central uh, eastern part of Africa, we then started touching Africa repeatedly all the way around, all the way up until we got to Spain and Portugal, and uh, and to see Africa as a country, there are 54 countries, I think it is, in in the in the continent of Africa. And you go through and look at all of the leaders of all of those countries, and they all tend to get in there elected, and then they stay and stay and stay. They stay for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And that's never a good thing because what they start doing inevitably is building up a support base around them. They stop concerning themselves with the true benefit of the country, and they start favoring the true benefit of them and their followers. That's who they're concerned about. Trump would do the same thing. If you didn't kowtow to his position, he he got rid of you. I don't care who you were. He got rid of you. And he mm -hmm. has some really good people on his staff. I mean, Rex Tillerson's a really, probably a pretty good guy. I don't know him, but he's very successful running Exxon uh, Oil. So, But he and Trump couldn't get along. I understand that. You going to ask a question? No, no. Okay. Um you know the thing that I that I continue to struggle with is the is the fact that people the the, the working class and the South is we're we're probably the bastion of this of this malady that I think we're suffering right now. Certainly, as we've been duped, we've been duped by the by the the right and really the the establishment, if you will. And this is something I want to make sure that I talk about during this discussion. And that is we are, we are approaching a point to where the imbalance in the income in the United States is the same as it was in 1927 and 1928. Scary. In 1928, the top 1% in the United States took home 23% of the total income. Now, let's say that we have a trillion dollars, and that's a made-up number. I'm just getting for, for an example. And, and of that trillion dollars, the top 1% is taking home, was taking home 23% of that. Today... We're back to that level. We're back to the level now to where the top 1% are taking home 24% of the total income. Now, the total income of the country is finite unless the Fed starts printing more money, which they have done and they may do again. But if, if there are a finite number of dollars available to redistribute every year in the economy, if, if more and more of those dollars keep piling up in the hands of fewer and fewer people, where, where, what are, where are all the rest of the people? What, what's left for them? So the middle class is going to eat up a big part of it, and then the lower one-third or the lower one-fourth, even worse, they're getting less and less. Fewer and fewer dollars are, are going down to their level to pay for simple things. Now, we that are wealthy, we can still buy our airplanes, and we can still have our multiple homes, and we can take our cruises around the world, none of which I apologize for. I mean, I've been broke twice in my life. I'm a, I'm a totally self-made man. And again, not because I'm smart and not because I work hard. I'm just, I've been very, very lucky, right place at the right time. But I, 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 I realize that, that everybody doesn't have the same chances that I did. I mean, women. Women don't get mm -hmm. the same chances in this country as we do. I mean, I think that what what is the what is the average? Is it seventy eight cents or eight? It's either seventy eight cents or eighty one cents compared to men doing the same job. That's not right. People of color, people that think people of color are poor and broke and they're in drug drug or they're in prison because they're lazy, they're worthless. That's just not true. Some of them are. You, you, Some of them are, without a doubt. You raised a great point, and I've been to all ninety five counties and Tennessee. You, you raised a great point of being even just being born in somewhere like Wilson County versus, you know, Williamson uh, or, County. Yeah. Or Williamson County even. Yeah. 
just being born there, your infrastructure is much better. Right. Schools right. are much right. better. That's a lot right. of people don't understand that. Yeah, who was it? I think it was Obama back in the first campaign said that said something about even successful business people didn't realize how beneficial it was for them because their government took care of the roads so their employees could come to work. The government paid for the school so their people could go to school and get an education and be good workers. The government does a lot of stuff. I mean, and, and that's that's another continuing part of this post-Reagan uh, mantra that, that, that the right continues to throw about, and that is, is that government's bad, big government's bad. Well, I don't really think they believe that's the case. Oh, man, you know, it's that, a huge there, government. <laughs> there, are things about, there are things about government that even the government haters love. And a lot of that, in the case of most of my right-wing friends, is the military. They love military. Personally, I think that we got a problem. Mm-hmm. We're spending 43% of the world's military budget, the world's. One country is p- almost paying for half of the whole world's military budget. How is that right? Mm-hmm. But, but you know what? Okay, I, I'll, I'll go along with, it, with you on that, Mr. Right-wing guy. If that's what you think we ought to do, but will you help me? Will you help me with some of my left-leaning tendencies, and that is to help make sure we feed the poor, that we give them shelter, that we provide them with education, that we provide them with help? Will you help me on my side? No. Right. No, I'm not going to help you, but I sure want you to help me. So that's one thing that I kind of where, where we when, – when we start talking about left, right, I think that we also have to, as a people, redefine. So, for example, you have Eisenhower, which you brought up. Right. It was a Republican. <laughs> His policies were the complete – antithesis of anything the current Republican administration. I don't consider the current Republicans Republicans. I consider Eisenhower a Republican. I consider them more like aristocrats or theocratic party. Like that, so is, would it behoove us to actually start like it's going to be hard though. Redefining that's going to be hard, Trevor. I mean, it's a hard know, verna- <laughs> vernacular is uh, it's kind of a, a concrete product. It, it starts out soft when you first start establishing positions based on a word, a term. But once it gets established, it's really hard to change it to to another meaning. And in and in my lifetime, it's changed dramatically because um, you know I can remember when I was a kid because I was born in '51. And 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 uh, and Eisenhower's president eight of the of the first nine years of my life, and uh, and I was a I was an Eisenhower fan. Now there was a transition going on. The real transition took place when when Johnson passed his, his civil rights bill or signed his civil rights bill, and the South started becoming right wing. You know, right wing tends to be preserving what we have. That's what that's what conservatism typically implies to me, and that is it's it's I, what we have right now. That's what I want, and more of it. And so, if the if if protecting business and protecting the establishment and Te- uh, protecting autocracy is what we wanted. I want more. I want that, and I want more. But but that's really not what the people who are voting for a lot of Republican positions right now, they're really not. They're people who won't change. Right. Now, will the Democrats or will the left give them the change they're looking for? I don't know. Well, that's what well, – okay, so not – maybe – so it's kind of more like a – remember in school when you had like an apple is to an orange as a celery is to a carrot. You know, you had those things that are more kin – Maybe, like, not trying to redefine the words. That's not what I was implying. Uh, Simply putting more context behind them. In other words, saying, like, hey, Eisenhower, Roosevelt, uh, FDR, these guys are more akin, their policy are more akin to these ideals. Right. And these, I'll just be quite frank, the ideals of the current Republican administration um, are more along the lines of what King George might have been Mm -hmm. doing. I feel like those are pretty drastic if if we break them down for people. Like they're pretty. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does. But I, I think that even even there, even if you take it back to King George, what was King George doing? He's trying to protect his position. Right. He just wanted to defend that. He wanted all those. So castles. that's what we highlight. That, that and and that's that's and I think that that's largely what's happening even in the Republican Party today. But let me go back to Eisenhower okay. just one second because there was a key thing that a lot of people miss even in, with Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, one of the last speeches. He gave. He says, "Be careful of the military complex, because they have their own self-serving goals and desires." And and he he has proven to be right. Yes. Now we've got a military <laughs> that that burns through a tremendous amount of our annual income as a country. We're out there fighting wars all over the world, losing a lot of them. But they're going to say, in most cases, we didn't lose. 
We just didn't win. I mean, we spent what? I think I think the number I heard the other day between Iraq and Afghanistan, I think it was three trillion dollars. It may have been six trillion dollars. I thought five point six was the number. It was so it was six. It was so six trillion dollars we've spent over there in the last since two thousand and one, two thousand and two. And they talked about the things that we could have done with that money instead. One of the things we could have done is we could have made the $1.3 trillion in student loan debt that, stu- that, that young people around the country are carrying on their backs right now. They're keeping them from buying homes, from, buy- from buying new cars, for, from get- even getting married because of all this debt. And that debt was created through a lot of these for-profit colleges that I think should have been criminal anyway. But, but the point is, we'll, but we'll still spend that money on military. We'll go fight wars, but we won't feed our hungry and house our homeless. It's, it's crazy where our priorities are. So you, you just jogged my memory. So can you explain why the stock market being high is not indicative of a, a strong economy? Why are they separate? Well, you're probably a little bit over my head in terms okay. of being, being able to really understand. And I'm fairly deeply invested in the this stock market. This is a Robert market. Reich thing. That's uh, uh, so, that's, that's, so what does he say? Robert Reich. So, oh. so in other words, like, like you had mentioned earlier in the 20s, right before the crash of 29. Right. The, the stock market was high. Right. You know, rich people had a right, and then eventually led to the crash and then ultimately the mm-hmm. depression. So essentially, they're saying the same thing. Eventually, this is unsustainable. Eventually, so in other words, a strong economy is when the the bulk of the country is doing well, and people have all the things you have mentioned. Uh, and necessarily because the stock market is not representative of how the country's actually doing. Well, in my opinion, I think the stock market is largely emotional. It is not uh, substantively supported by the numbers all the time. You know, our PE, uh, the, the average PE over the last um, uh, 50 or 75 years has been around 17 to 18. And right now it's much higher than that, which indicates that the market's overbought. It's overbought beyond where it is now and should be. I actually got largely out of the market last November. I became dissatisfied and disenchanted with what's going on in Washington and the and the country in general. And that uh, and and I was concerned that a lot of the jibber jabber and the and the jaw jacking that Trump's doing all the time had just created this uncomfortable imbalance to me for me. And it could we could have a five hundred or a thousand dollar point drop in one day. I'm just not comfortable with that. I just I don't want to be in that. And I'm still in some key stocks, but for the most part, I'm I'm largely in cash and bonds right now because I just don't trust where the market is. I hope it doesn't crash. I really don't because I don't want it to do damage to all my friends that are that are deeply dug into and and they're and they're crowing every day about how much money they're making in the stock market. And I hope they continue to. I really do because I'm not losing any money. I'm just not making any money because I'm not in equities right now. But but I'm afraid something's going to happen. I'm afraid that the you know with what's going on in China and the in the in the in the anger that exists between us and China and even Europe for that matter. I just it's just really unsettling to me. So I don't know. I don't know that I can tie the stock market to the larger market in general or not. So I'm still doing okay. I'm still making money. So it'll be all right. Yeah. So if that bottom falls out, which is what some economists are saying, they're saying again unsustainable. It, it's going to crash. It's a matter of when, right? Yeah, but what what is are they calling a crash? Are they talking about something that would happen? What happened in two thousand eight and two thousand nine? Yeah, it could about be fifty percent drop. I, I mean, I've think. talked to a lot of people in the housing industry, and they're like, it's going to happen again. Like in other words, the things that they were doing that led to the crash of two thousand eight are not only happening; still, they're they're being exacerbated. So. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, new housing starts are still not not screaming, but they're still doing pretty good. I just drove through Nashville, and I've never seen so many cranes in my life yeah. coming coming through Nashville. I mean, I just came back from Washington D.C., uh, New York. I was in New York last week. There's building going on everywhere. Could it all bottom out? Sure, but I don't know that there's anything now. I didn't see the I didn't see the housing crash come because I wasn't as dug into the over lending that was taking place. I'm cer- I was certainly aware of some of the crazy stuff that was happening. My daughter, for one, she bought a she she bought a house on what was the term they used? Um, stated income. So mm-hmm. we went through a period there for about 18 to 24 months where you could come into a bank and want to borrow money, and all you had to do was tell them how much you made. You didn't have to show them a W-2. You didn't have to show them a tax return. All you had to do was say, yeah, I made $225,000 last year, and they wrote it down, and that was it. 
Now, that was crazy, and that was an ind indication of things are out of control. I don't think we have anything like that going on right now. I mean, I'm trying to do alone right now. I'm building some spec houses down in Georgia, and my bank's wanting all kinds of information from me, and it's all a product of what we went through in 2008 and 2009. I'm fine with providing it, so anyway. So when you say it's not unsustainable, what do you mean? You mean I say it's if not? We, if we keep going on, on the trend of not I just think wages. I think that overall the American economy from a production of products and services at, coupled with a cons consummation, consuming of those products and services is still pretty stable. I, I think that I don't see any really dark cloud hanging over our head, any big chasm that we don't have a bridge over. I, you know, I, I can see maybe a 20% correction, which would be pretty big, you know, 5,000 points off of just top, top lop it off. Yeah, I, I guess I could see that happening. And I think it actually is fairly healthy, but it would kill a lot. Of, a lot of people would just be, you know, they're borrowing on it. They, they, they've, got, they've got all kinds of stuff borrowed against that money that they think they've got in the stock market because when it's sitting in the stock market, it's really not yours until you sell it. Now it may you could sell it today and you could take it all out, but it's not your money until you take it out of the out of the market itself. So I, I don't know. I don't think we're that. I don't think we're in, the, in that big a danger. Scotty, can you look up the joke that economists have about the difference between a depression and a recession? Try to pull that up for us real quick. Have you ever heard that? No, I have not. No, no. This is a a going <coughs> junk a joke among the. Economists. So I, I do listen to people like Robert Reich, Nick Hanar. Um, so I don't, you know, we could. It, that's well, they're all debatable issues, right? They're, they're all debatable issues, right. but we have precedent. That's the that's the sure, bet. Sure. Like, hey, when things were kind of like this, is when this happened. So right. it's it's kind of a, from a historical standpoint. Well, some of the stars are lined up very similarly to where they were in twenty eight and twenty nine, as I outlined earlier. You know, with the with the distribution of income. Distribution of income is way out of line right now. Yeah. I mean, we wealthier are taking way too much money. It's like Nick and I were talking about his jeans. I mean, I can only have so many cars. I have six or seven cars right now. I have two airplanes. I mean, how much stuff do, am I going to buy? Right. And and so, but but the people that work for me could go buy a new car and would go buy a new car. They'd go maybe buy a house, and that's where a lot of the money needs to go now. I'm like anybody else. These friends of mine always give me a hard time about thinking we're not paying enough taxes in the country, and they want me to write them a. Well, just write the IRS a bigger check. Well, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to create a separate set of rules for myself, right. and I don't feel guilty. Every dollar I've got, I made. So I, I don't feel guilty about it. But but I, what I'm saying is that my concern is greater for the country mm -hmm. than it is for me. Yeah, cause it's still stuff the back. country, this country, the best country in the history of mankind, in my opinion, is more important than Stephen Prince. Yeah. It's more important than my children. And I tell my children that all the time. Patriot I am money. not trying to save any money for you guys. Mm -hmm. Now, whatever's left when I die and your mother dies, you're, you're welcome to it. And that's all set up to where it will dis dis distribute to you accordingly. But in the meantime, I'm going to do everything I can to right this ship of unrighteousness that we're all sailing on right now. The way we've structured the tax law in America is just, uh, you know, the word I keep using is unsustainable, but it's also not fair. It's just not fair for those of us that have the money. And, and I would never have missed a meal. If mm -hmm. I just had two big transactions last year, and I'm going, I, I'm taxed at 23.8 percent on that. Why not 35? Why not 36? Why not 37? But because we rich guys are writing the rules, and and did I pay 23.8 or will I pay 23.8 on April 15th? You damn right I will. Is it true? Do I do I pay a higher income tax? The rate? average the average uh, uh, working class American pays more than I do. Our average, now not more than me, because I, I typically pay, pay I, you go back and look at my tax returns over the last eight or 10 years, I've paid 35 to 36% every year, because I don't structure my income so I can, so I can, oh, so so I can dodge the taxes, and I could do it. Yeah, now, right. I just, I'm actually doing something right now. I'm doing a development right now on Music Row in Nashville. Music Row in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the best named roads in America, and I'm going to, if we build this building, and it works out the way that I hope it does, in 10 years and a day, we can sell it, and we can make $20 million. And you know how much taxes we pay on that gain? Zero. 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 I thought it was going to be close to zero. Did you find that, Scotty? No, you can't find it? Okay, there's a joke. We'll go back to that. Um, that, can you explain to our viewers the, uh, and I just kind of totally lost that, um, with taxes, mm -hmm. 
the there's a word for it, marginal tax rate. Can right. you explain that? Why do companies so so everybody's thing is is like, well, I don't want to be taxed at forty percent of my income. When actually, what they don't understand is that they get a lot of subsidies and tax breaks, which end up knocking it down to zero. That's very layman. Can you? Well, uh, the tax laws are created so that very, very smart accountants, CPAs, and attorneys can slice it and dice it and parse it out. And what they do is they start teaching us people who make a lot of money how to make our money differently. So what we're able to do is to, is to, to label our income righteously and legally uh, so that it appears to be something other than what it was before we relabeled it. And by having relabeled it, now we don't have the tax burden is either low or nothing. I mean, you know, what is the, I think the average one percenter pays 14%. Their average income tax burden in the United States is 14%. You know, we talk about how the, the, uh, the, the tax burden in the United States is, is one of the highest in the world. Well, that may be the way the law is written, but what it doesn't include or calculate is the way we work around those loopholes that are in the tax law that allow all of us wealthy people to hire a bunch of accountants and attorneys to make sure that it's, that it's treated lower in the lower level. I mean, look at, look at the uh, earned income, uh, uh, not earned income, uh, carried, carried interest. The carried interest uh, that one, one small group, hedge fund guys all around the world, all around the country, and they're just really just a few hundred of them. There they aren't that many, but they get to treat their income as if they invested their own money. They get to it when and they, their income gets treated at a 23.8% or, or capital gains rate rather than ordinary income, which is a 12 to 14% bonus that they get. And it wasn't their money. It's other people's money. It's people like me that gave them a million or $2 million to invest for me. And then their income they get from their 2%, 20% return, they get to treat theirs just as if they were me, as if they put their own money in. They didn't put it's their ridiculous. money in. It's absurd. Is that speculation? Is that what that's called? Well, speculation is just when you when you're betting on something that's not a it's really a high risk something that's high risk but that, that doesn't so they don't they don't pay taxes on that either on what on speculation well speculation is the process uh, winning is the gain now because speculating alone indicates that it's a high risk and it is the things that they do are, are really high risk but also high return in the process. Uh, but but the, they don't pay taxes on those returns. That's what I Well, no, they do, but they pay it on a much lower rate than, than ordinary income. In other words, if they work for um, uh, Chase, Chase Bank and, uh, and they made half a million dollars a year as an executive vice president, they would pay an ordinary income on that, less whatever sort of um, uh, loopholes their accountant could come up with that they could hide some of it. But at the end of the day, they'd pay 30 to 35%. So, Whereas if, if, you, if you invested in Chase stock, and you held on to it for a year, and you sold it for a half million dollar gain. You're only going to pay 23.8 percent, which is long-term capital gains. So you have to hold it for a year and a day to treat it as capital as long-term capital gains versus ordinary income. So the so the treatment of the of the of the of the same amount of money is treated 14 to 15 percent differently if you comply with the laws the way they're written. Again protecting we rich it's all about protecting the rich and the and the people that are voting for these people the republicans they don't even know that they don't even understand it it's a it's a shiny object thing you know they they come out here and they hold this shiny object up and that shiny object is gun control or or immigration or abortion all these shiny objects that they can get all emotionally fired up about when really what they're interested in those republicans that are running for office is this thing they have behind their back and it's called tax law called dog whistling that's what we dog whistling i'm not familiar with that one so in politics dog whistling is when you when you're when a, uh, the the best example if anybody wants to look this up is mitt romney talking on the death tax and the death tax is actually wealth tax but they call it a death inheritance tax. tax they call it it's an inheritance tax and they call it the death tax and and this guy mitt romney gets on the stage and he tells a bunch of farmers he says, he says, when you die, you already paid for that farm. You shouldn't have to pay for that farm again. And everybody hoots and hollers. But the truth is the bill doesn't really uh, affect anything less than $10 million. <laughs> so the people he's talking to, the bill, that they're hooting for something they don't even understand. Uh, John Oliver does a piece on this. And, and John Oliver says, he says, unless you, uh, you know, call your accumulation of crap over the last 40 years in a state it probably doesn't apply to you right. <laughs> is the joke he makes about it but yeah, there's a number i can't remember how big the number is of people it's actually more than that now when we passed the new tax law in 2017 uh we raised the the um the shelter from what was it it's now 11.2 11.5 11 
11.5, I think it is, per person. So 20, $23 million, I think that's right, $23 million. So, so I can leave my kids, my wife and I can leave our kids $23 million, and they pay no taxes on that whatsoever. Yeah. Now, now the, the, the right's counter to it, and that is I've already earned all of that money, so why should I pay taxes on it again? And, and you're right, but you're not paying the taxes. Your kids are paying the taxes, right. and they didn't earn it. Your kids didn't make that money. No. And, and, and to not understand that that is a continuation of the construction of an oligarchy is completely naive and obtuse. Correct. That you don't understand that, that a few thousand of us are going to leave billions and billions of dollars to our children. A lot of our children are worthless or, or inept. They'll blow through the money like corn through a goose in no time whatsoever. But because I, because I earned it, I don't want to pay taxes on it again. Well, you're not, Stephen. You're not going to have to pay taxes on it. Your kids are. Right. And if my kids can't get by on their share of 22, 23 million bucks, then they don't need to have any of it. Yeah. I, need to, I needed to leave it to the government. Which, that doesn't, that only applies to you, too. So, like, if I, if something happens to me, then that, that tax burden will be paid through who I leave the house to. So I don't get away from that. Right, they'll, right. They'll, they'll, they'll have to pay taxes. But on you're it. dead, right? Huh? If I'm dead. Yeah, if you're dead. So, so uh, again, what, right. what difference does it make to oh, us? Oh, no, but I'm it's saying— It's just greed. But I'm saying Trevor, even— it's all it comes down to. It right, just comes just down greed. to greed. That's all it is. And it's not even greed for ourselves. It's greed for our children or for our children. It's just crazy how we get that mindset. Okay, so I got the, the joke. So the joke between economists between a recession and a depression is a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose your job. That's true. That's true. That's pretty that's sad. Good. That's a good point. So it's whether it affects you or not, I yep, guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do we fix all this? We've covered a lot. Where do we start to, to make amends? How do we do that? Well, Trevor, I, obviously, if I knew that, I'd probably be running for office myself, and that's not I true. I would not, run, I would not run for office uh, for any amount of money. But um, I actually had a plan about uh, before I discovered Patriotic Millionaires. I had decided that I wanted to find – I was ready to put a million dollars of my money into – trying to turn the ship around. But I didn't want to just throw a million dollars out there into the into the wind and hope that it landed in the right spots. I wanted to go to all over the country and find 99 more people like me and raise $100 million and then go to Hollywood and hire a, a Michael Moore type person that could really uh, write about the circumstance and the situation that's in America in such a way that we could tell the true story to the people who are missing out on the true story. The people really who are stuck in in this position of of supporting our president to the point to where they're ready to fight for him, they'll go they'll go do battle. I mean, you know, we're talking about the um, the whistleblower. People don't understand that if we told who that whistleblower is, there are some people in this country who would travel to wherever that person is and kill them, and kill them, and that because they believe in our president that much. That's that's the that's the depth of commitment to a lot of these people have. To the president, and I get that they want things to be changed. I really understand that, but this president is not going to change, and this president is representative of the problem. Mm -hmm. This president is the guy who's going to protect all the moneyed interests in the country who are causing the problems. Not and, draining the swamp. Yeah, not draining the swamp. If anything, he's building a moat around it and protecting it so it'll stay just as full as it's ever been. It's just, just the opposite. It's just that now he's got his henchmen instead of the previous henchmen. Now, some of the henchmen are the same, but still it's, they're all pursuing the same cause, which is pr to protect the wealthy. People, the voting class of America, just don't understand that what's going on in America is to take care of we wealthy people. If, the, if it was anything else, we would have a very different legal structure, legislative uh, agenda than we've had. I mean, Mitch McConnell, he doesn't care about the working class. He cares about protecting the wealthy people who, who pay money into his campaign, the Brown Foremans and, 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 and real legitimate companies. I mean, these companies aren't nefarious. They're not, they're not dark, black spots in the universe. They're just, they're just greedy. And greed's a real deal. It's something that pervades our, our life. I'm a greedy person, too. But I care about America more than I do myself. And I tell people this all the time. If I could write a check for 100% of every dollar I have, 100% of my net worth, and it would cure the problems of America, I'd write it one as soon as I got to the house. I'd go home right now, and I'd write that check, knowing that I had fixed it. But 
I don't have that much money. You take Bill Gates, um, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, three of the richest, if not the three richest men in the country. If all three of them wrote 100% of the value, their total wealth, to the U.S. government, that wouldn't fix the problem. We've, it's gotten too big. Yeah. We're $23 trillion now in debt, and that's just monstrously big. So how do we fix it, buddy? I wish I knew. I really wish I knew. I wish I had an answer because that's what we would be talking about. But somehow or another, we've got to get the, the, the voter, the voting class, the working class of America to stop watching television and stop looking at Facebook. And they need to start reading. They need to start reading more because I think you're going to find more on the written page than you will in, in some sort of electronic delivery system. The whole process of, of watching something on your, on your phone or on your iPad or on your computer is very different than picking up a magazine or a book and reading that. And I think that the commitment of le uh, the level of commitment that it takes to read a book or read a magazine from cover to cover the way I do every day, every, every, every day of my life, I'm reading stuff. Uh, and trying to figure out more about what's going on and why what's going on is going on. And until we can get people to do that, then I think it's going to continue. So many people in America are getting all of their news, 100% of their news from Fox News. That's, that's their total source of data. And what they don't understand is Fox News is not the news, it's Fox Opinions. It's total. Watch, look at the book, look at the movie that was just out, the loudest voice in the room, with with Russell Crowe, where he was Roger Ailes. Phenomenal movie. And if you watch that movie, and you can still watch Fox News as your sole source of data and information, yeah. then something's wrong with you. Something's wrong if you don't understand that that the that the causes that causes that they are supporting are not in the working man's best interest. They're, the they're, they're emotionalizing things that they know you'll get emotional about. They tell you they're going to take your guns away when they don't really care whether you got guns or not. You can't get to their house. We all live in gated communities. You can't get, <laughs> you can't get to us. We just know that you'll get fired up about guns, mm -hmm. and then you'll vote for the people that I want you to vote for, and he'll lower my taxes. That's really all they want. Yeah. But the working class don't understand that, and somehow or another, we got to. Maybe what you're doing here today will do it. Maybe, maybe more and more Same. of these will do that. So I, I don't know. I, I wish I knew, but I'm not going to stop the fight, buddy. Next time you talk to me, if I'm sentient, if I can walk <laughs> around and drive a car, I'll still be saying the same thing. I believe in this country, and I believe that that uh, that if if not enough of us continue to fight to defend and protect it and get it back on its track, it's not going to stay on the right track. It will go off track. We can't go another 25 years the way we're going right now because if we do, then we're going to get to the point to where the rich have 30%, 35% of the income, and, and even at the 24% that it is today is too much. And that's It'll, what creates the bread lines. That, that's right. And pitchforks. And pitchforks. And pitchforks. That's so, right. I don't know, but thanks for what you're doing. Absolutely. So Samuel Adams said, if knowledge and information be diffused among the people, then it will be their greatest security. Right. So I guess we got to figure out how to educate. Yep, that's right. That's right. Well, we appreciate having you on, Stephen. It's been great. Thanks for the wine. <laughs> yep.